1931 at the premiere of his very famous movie, City Lights, uh, Charlie Chaplin ran into Albert Einstein. It's a really strange combination of two people. It's a strange meeting. In the same way, on uh, December 21st, 1970, Elvis Presley walked into the White House and met with President Nixon. It's another strange meeting, a strange combination of people. And what makes this one even stranger is that during this meeting, Elvis talked President Nixon into making him a federal agent from the Bureau of Narcotics. That's a really bizarre story, right? Sometimes famous people have really strange meetings. And I bring this up today because as we continue our study in the Gospel according to Matthew this morning, we find one of the strangest meetings in the entire Bible, a meeting between Jesus and John the Baptist. Now, the idea that Jesus and John the Baptist would meet up may at first not seem strange to us at all. It doesn't seem nearly as incompatible as Chaplin and Einstein or Nixon and Elvis. Uh, if you know your Bibles well, in fact, you know that Jesus and John the Baptist were relatives. So the fact that they would meet doesn't really seem strange at first, but what we're going to see today is this meeting is indeed strange, not simply because Jesus and John met, but because of what happened when they met. Jesus was baptized by John, and they have a very curious conversation about it. And we're going to see all of that today in Matthew chapter 3. But before we jump into today's text, I want to do a little bit of review to remember what we've seen up to this point. Thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus' genealogy. We have learned about the miraculous circumstances of Jesus' conception. We've seen that Jesus' birth generated various responses, a worshipful response from the Magi and a murderous response from King Herod. We've seen that God delivered the toddler Jesus from Herod's murderous intentions by relocating his family. And ultimately, we've seen that Jesus wound up living in the northern region of Israel called Galilee in the small town of Nazareth. And that's where we left Jesus at the end of chapter 2. But then last week, as we started chapter 3, we saw that Matthew jumped more than 30 years into the future. And as Matthew jumped ahead in time, he also jumped to introduce a new figure in this narrative, John the Baptist, who was the first prophet to speak God's word in Israel in four centuries. Last week we saw that John's ministry was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he preached a message emphasizing repentance, that he declared the kingdom of heaven had drawn near because the king has come and would soon be publicly revealed. And that's where we left things last week. But now as we pick up today, we're going to see that the story of Jesus and the story of John come together in this strange meeting at the Jordan River that has generated many theological questions over the last 2,000 years. And we're going to see that this, this meeting has a wondrous and surprising and strange conclusion, which uh, certainly classifies this as an amazing meeting. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And today we're going to see just two points. First, by far our longer point will be that surprisingly... The sinless Savior subjects himself to John's baptism, which John, or which John and the Bible call a baptism of repentance. The sinless Savior undergoes a baptism, which is called a baptism of repentance. And then second, we're going to see that gloriously, the Father and the Holy Spirit attest to the Son. Start with our first point, in which the Savior submits himself to John's baptism, which the Bible calls a baptism of repentance. And this seems very strange because Jesus is sinless, according to the New Testament. 
Now, as we look at this first point, we're going to consider four questions which I think are prompted by our passage. Let's start with uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, and you'll see this week we're going to try to put some verses up on the, on the screens, but if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, please do so. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. More than 30 years have passed since we last saw Jesus in this book, and that observation naturally leads us to this question. What has Jesus been doing for the last 30 years? Now, the Gospels don't tell us much about this period of Jesus' life, but they do tell us a few things from which we can draw some conclusions. First, we know that Jesus was born to a devout, observant Jewish family. We've seen that already in this study. Chapters 1 and 2, Joseph received a series of visions from God involving an angel. And in these visions, Joseph was given a number of commands, difficult commands, that would impose a very high personal cost on Joseph if he chose to obey them. And yet in each case, Joseph responded with unflinching obedience. Joseph is a man of faith who obeys the Lord. Luke's Gospel tells us the same thing about Mary. In chapter 1 of Luke, when the angel Gabriel tells Mary about her impending pregnancy, which again would be a very difficult plan, which would have exacted a very high personal cost from her, her response was, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. It's a response of total faith and obedience. And Joseph and Mary's obedience continued past the point of Jesus' birth. In Luke 2, we read that Joseph and Mary fulfilled various rituals mandated by the Old Testament law concerning the birth of a new child. And when Joseph and Mary performed these rituals, we read that they took Jesus with them to Jerusalem, which is actually beyond what the law specified. They weren't required to do that, but they were interested in doing more than the bare minimum of what the Lord required. They really loved the Lord. Moreover, the Mosaic law required all Jewish men to come to Jerusalem for the Passover annually. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus began to observe this custom at the age of 12, which was one year before that would have actually be, be, become a requirement for him. Again, Jesus is keen to obey his heavenly Father. He went beyond the bare minimum requirements of keeping the law. And Joseph and Mary, for their part, were happy to pay for the expenses of Jesus to join them on this trip, which would not have been cheap at that time, traveling from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. But they did it because they delighted in the Lord. Now, famously, on his first trip to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, Jesus wound up staying behind after his parents left town. And when they came back for him, we read that they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, often when we think of this scene, we think of little Jesus teaching the teachers. That's not exactly what the text tells us. What the text says was, there was an astonishingly profound dialogue between a middle school-aged Jesus and the teachers of Israel. This tells us that Jesus had an astonishing degree of theological insight from his youth. Now, we might be quick to attribute that solely to his deity, but I would caution us here very, very much that we have to be very careful when we talk about how Jesus' deity interacted with his humanity, because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about how that happened. Certainly throughout his ministry, Jesus will at times do things that clearly evidence his deity and reflect his divine power. But we will see next week that one of the temptations that Satan put to Jesus 
was to basically avoid the difficulties of living like an ordinary human and to lean on his divine prerogatives. And that was a temptation because that was not to be the regular way that Jesus lived. Remember Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God, the eternal Son, humbled himself and set some of his divine prerogatives aside for a time and came to live as an authentic human being. Now, Jesus is still fully God in his time of, of being incarnate on the earth, but for most of his life, Jesus was to live as an ordinary, obedient man. And so perhaps Jesus' theological insight in his youth came from his deity, or perhaps part of it was the fact that he was raised in a godly home that encouraged him to think and talk deeply about the things of God. Jesus had a godly family, and Jesus had siblings. We're told in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth to a son. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was ever virgin, but the use of the word until in Matthew 1.25 suggests otherwise. So does Matthew 13.55, in which people from Nazareth who want to oppose Jesus invoke Jesus' family in an attempt to undermine his credibility. And they say... Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? They think that because they're familiar with Jesus' family, they can dismiss what he has to say. Now, the Catholic Church argues that the words here, meaning brother and sister, can sometimes refer to cousins in the Greek. And that does happen very infrequently, but this, it's not their ordinary meaning at all. It seems very clear from the text that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And in this context, he grew up. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I used to really have trouble with this verse, and I think that's because I thought about Jesus only in terms of his deity and never in terms of his authentic humanity. And I would look at this and say, how can it be that Jesus increased in wisdom? He's God. How can God increase in wisdom? He couldn't, right? But I had forgotten to emphasize Jesus' humanity. God the Son became a real human being, and humans grow. They learn, and Jesus as a real human grew up. He learned things. He lived a godly life. He comported himself honorably. He distinguished himself among men, and even before God the Father. Even though Jesus was fully divine, God still honored Jesus because of his life of unswerving faith and obedience. And as Jesus grew up, he began working. Matthew 13, 55, which I cited a minute ago, Jesus' critics try to discredit him not only by invoking his brothers and sisters, but they also say, is not this the carpenter's son? Now, of course, Matthew's already told us that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. But what I want to point out here is that Joseph's called a carpenter. They think this is an insult on Jesus because, you know, he doesn't come from an exalted family. He's someone we knew. But Joseph is called a carpenter. The Greek word is tektone, and this is a word that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean anything from a construction worker to a skilled worker with wood to a stonemason to a foreman or a contractor or an architect. And it's a big range of possible meanings. In short, this just tells us that Joseph built things. But Joseph wasn't the only one who built things. Because in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus' opponents say of Jesus himself, Is not this the carpenter? Jesus apparently followed Joseph into the family business of construction work before beginning his ministry. Jesus was known in Nazareth as someone who built things for a living. 
Now, what's interesting is that during this very time, when Jesus was living in Nazareth and working as a tectone, just four miles away, there was an absolutely massive construction project going on. Herod Antipas, who reigned over Galilee, decided to develop a town called Sepphoris. And I've got some pictures of Sepphoris. That's a picture of the excavation of Sepphoris, and you can see a number of buildings and ruins. Now, based on the size and speed with which this project was conducted, it seems likely that every tectone in the entire area would have been employed in this project. And so there are probably ruins of buildings which are still standing today in Sepphoris, which Jesus and Joseph helped to build. And that's pretty cool, right? So for, go ahead and show them the other one, Brian. Yeah, so that's the amphitheater. That one might have been a little bit after the time uh, that Jesus and Joseph were working, but it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. So for 30 years, Jesus lived in Nazareth. He grew up. He worshipped his heavenly Father. He lived as an obedient Jew. He had brothers and sisters and friends, and he built stuff for a living. And then one day, he left all of that behind, and he walked 70 miles south to the area where John the Baptist was ministering. Because Jesus was aware that God's call was on his life. And at the preordained moment, Jesus responded to God's call with, again, faith and obedience. Now, this leads to the second question that we need to take on today, which is a question that I deferred answering last week. And that question is, what was the importance of John the Baptist baptizing people? Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about John's preaching. But what about this symbol of baptism? What was it? Where did it come from, and what did it mean? The word baptize comes from the Greek verb baptizo, and it's often said that baptizo means to dip. That's kind of a soft translation. In most of its Greek usage outside the New Testament, baptizo is a fairly rare verb, and it means a lot more than dipping. It often means something like to drown, to flood, or to overwhelm. The word is found only four times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and one of these is a metaphorical use meaning overwhelm, but the other three refer to people taking baths, immersing themselves in water. Now, while baptizo was a rare verb before the New Testament, it becomes a common verb within the New Testament, and that starts with John. Now, based on the ordinary meaning of this word, I think we should understand that John was plunging, he was fully immersing repentant people in the Jordan. Now, why was he doing this? Where did this idea of immersing someone in water come from, and what does it mean? Well, like I just told you, baptizo was not a frequently occurring verb prior to uh, John the Baptist. And that suggests that what John was doing here was something that was quite new. There's not a lot of historical precedent behind it. Some scholars have tried to find parallels between what John was doing and the practices of first century Judaism, but the parallels are pretty weak. Some factions within Judaism occasionally practiced ceremonial washings related to ritual purity, but these were repeated washings, whereas John's baptism seems to be a one-time thing, demonstrating a person's newfound repentance towards their sin, not just questions of ritual impurity. Others point out, and I think this one has more merit, that there is some evidence that Gentiles who wanted to become Jews during this time had to undergo circumcision and then a ritual washing. Now, if that's the background of John's baptism, that gives us some insight. Because it means that John took a conversion ritual which had been applied only to Gentiles, and he applied it to Jews, which is very consistent with something John said in last week's passage. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
Don't imagine you're right with God just because of your ethnic background. John says, no, God demands that you turn to him in repentance. Jews need to convert to God's way as much as Gentiles. Perhaps that was the idea. Although it seems that when Gentiles converted to Judaism, the emphasis was put on their circumcision, not on this washing. And so this theory also has problems. In short, we, we don't know exactly where the idea for John's baptism came from, other than to say it came from God. Perhaps it was inspired through these washing rituals in Judaism. Perhaps it was an entirely new idea. We cannot know for certain. But we do know that John baptized with a full immersion in the Jordan River. So what was the meaning of this baptism? Well, the, ba the Bible tells us John baptized for three reasons. First, receiving John's baptism was an outward sign that a person had properly responded to John's preaching, which we saw last week was a demand that they repent. And we know there's a connection between baptism and John's repentance, because Matthew 3.7 says people were baptized by John in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And John says in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. So John's baptism is a symbol of repentance from sin. But how did this symbol work? Well, if we think about the symbolism of Christian baptism today, we probably think of passages like Romans 6.4, which says we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too live and walk in newness of life. Christian baptism is a visual representation of spiritual realities, that through our faith we have been joined to Christ's death, that our old life of sin has died and been buried, that we are now joined to Christ's resurrection, we have been given a new life in Christ in which we can now live and serve and please God, and that is the symbolism, the rich symbolism of Christian baptism. But John's baptism was not Christian baptism. We know that because in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul runs into a group of Jews who we are told had been baptized into John's baptism. In the past, they had encountered John's preaching and they had been baptized, but they did not know more than what John had told them. They didn't know about Jesus. In Acts 19.4, Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, God required more of people than that they simply adhere to the message of John the Baptist. God required people to come to faith in Christ. And what we see in Acts 19 is these Jews who had been baptized by John still had to come to faith in Christ. In other words, the earlier baptism was not Christian baptism. In fact, they had to be baptized again because the earlier baptism was not Christian baptism. So John's baptism was not a Christian baptism. Christian baptism certainly came out of John's baptism. We've said John's baptism has really no clear precedent in Judaism. But Christians continue John's practice of fully immersing new converts. As John had baptized, so Jesus would call on people to be baptized. In John chapter 4, we read that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Jesus' preaching urged a response of baptism, which was administered by the disciples. And this continued beyond Jesus' resurrection and ascension. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his followers to go into all the nations and baptize people. This is a command for the whole church age. But the practice finds its roots in John's baptism. Now again, John's baptism was not Christian baptism, and so we cannot understand the imagery of John's baptism in the same way we understand the imagery of Christian baptism. 
There's no notion in John's baptism of being joined to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So then what does this represent? I think we get some insight from the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived just one generation after John. Josephus summarized John's ministry like this. John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism for the purification of the body, supposing that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. In other words, what, Joseph, what Josephus records is that the symbolism of John the Baptist was widely understood like this. If someone repented, God cleansed them of their sins and purified them, and so their body should be outwardly cleansed to show the inward work that God had done in repentance. And so that was the first reason John baptized, to symbolize repentance. But that's not all. Because second, John's baptism is an anticipation of the greater one who would come after him. We saw last week that John announced the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And he explains that in chapter 3, verse 11. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism anticipates the coming of this mighty one, the Messiah, who will bring a superior baptism. Not just a symbolic baptism of water, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the repentant and the baptism of fire for the unrepentant. So John's baptism doesn't just signify cleansing the repentant, but it also looks forward to a fuller, deeper, ultimate spiritual reality of forgiveness and new life which will come from the coming Messiah. But that's not all. Because the Bible also tells us there was a third purpose to John's baptism. And here I want you to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is a pretty important text for this sermon. John the Baptist said, John 1.30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. God sent John to preach and baptize so that through John's work, the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. John knew the Messiah was coming and would succeed him in ministry, but John did not know exactly who the Messiah would be. He says that explicitly here. Remember that. It's going to be very important in just a minute. But God indicated that through John's baptism, not only would John, but Israel discover who the Messiah was. And how would this happen? Look at verse 33. John says, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Again, John says he did not know with specificity who the Messiah would be, but God had promised him a visible sign that would help him recognize the Messiah. The Holy Spirit would visibly descend and remain on the Messiah. And so that is the third reason that John baptized, because through his baptism, the Messiah would be revealed. All right, so we've seen why John baptized. We've seen what Jesus was up to in Nazareth, and now they're going to meet as Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But as Jesus approaches John for baptism, we read in Matthew 3, 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. And this leads to our third question. Why? Why does John try to stop Jesus from being baptized? 
Well, if you're like me, the first answer that pops in your head is that John somehow knows that Jesus is the Messiah. John has said the Messiah is coming, the Messiah will bring a greater baptism, and John somehow recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, and so John says to Jesus, you don't need my baptism of repentance, I need your superior baptism of the Holy Spirit. That would all make very good sense, except for one thing. We just saw in John chapter 1 that twice John says, I did not know who the Messiah would be. God told John the distinguishing sign that would identify the Messiah is that the Spirit would descend on the Messiah. And we'll see in a minute, the Gospels all tell us the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus only after He was baptized, not before. So at this point, before Jesus is baptized, John cannot yet have seen the Spirit descend on Him. John cannot yet know that for certain Jesus is the Messiah. So why then does he try to prevent Him from being baptized? John apparently knows that something is special and holy and different about Jesus, even if he does not yet know with specificity what it is. So well, how could John have known something was special about Jesus? Let me draw your attention back to Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1, verses 5 through 25, we read about the miraculous conception of John the Baptist, who was conceived in an older and fertile woman named Elizabeth. Then in Luke 1, 26 to 38, we read about the even more miraculous conception of Jesus who was conceived in the Virgin Mary. And in verse 36, we read that the angel Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth, who was Mary's relative, was miraculously pregnant. And so in Luke 1, 39, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And in the exchange that follows between Mary and Elizabeth, I want to draw your attention to three things. First, in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, was supernaturally aware and able to respond when Jesus, who was also in his mother's womb, approached. That's very interesting, isn't it? I have no idea what it would be like to be in the womb and be aware of what's going on around, but apparently that's what the Bible says happened. Second, in verse 42, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth has given supernatural insight into Mary's miraculous pregnancy. She knew that Mary's child was in some way remarkable and supernatural. Third, in verse 56 we read that Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned home. Now, across the course of those three months, we would expect that Mary told Elizabeth all that God had revealed to her. Now, from this, I think we can draw this conclusion that growing up, Elizabeth's son John would have certainly heard from his mom about his cousin Jesus, that Jesus was special, that Jesus was even greater and more miraculous in his conception than he was, that as the angel told Mary, Jesus was a holy child. Moreover, based on the closeness between Mary and Elizabeth that we see here, I would say it's likely that John met Jesus. They were about the same age I pointed out last week. And if they did spend time together, John would have seen that Jesus was a righteous young man. John would not have seen any sin in him, or else when Jesus had come to the Jordan, John would have said, repent and be baptized, which is not what happened. From what John had doubtless heard from his mother, and from what he may have personally experienced of Jesus, as well as whatever supernatural insight God gave him into Jesus, which apparently manifested itself while he was still in the womb, John knew that Jesus was holy, that Jesus was special, that Jesus was different, different enough to say, Jesus, you're really the one who should be doing the baptizing here. 
He was not aware of any sin in Jesus that needed to be confessed. No change of life was required on Jesus' part. And this is consistent with the testimony of the rest of the New Testament. Jesus' best friend John in 1 John 3, 5 would write, In him there is no sin. Jesus' other best friend Peter would write in 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus committed no sin. Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, I think this is a powerful apologetic, they open their letters by saying, we are slaves of Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you guys have siblings, but what would it take for you to say, I'm a slave of my older brother? They speak of Jesus in exalted language. They're not sitting around saying, oh yeah, I remember what Jesus used to do when mom and dad would leave town. No, they said, we know Jesus is the real deal. Listen to this. James calls him in chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord of glory. Jude finishes his book by saying, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. It's an amazingly high view of Jesus. And these are the people who knew him the best in the whole world, who knew him his whole life. That's not the way most of us see our siblings, is it? There was something undeniable about Jesus' life that was sinless and righteous. Jesus' former enemy, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, calls Jesus him who knew no sin. One of the best evidences of this, I think, is in John 8. Jesus is surrounded by his enemies, and he says to them, Which one of you convicts me of sin? And nobody can say a word. The testimony of Scripture, of those closest to Jesus, and of Jesus' foes is consistent, and it's clear Jesus is sinless. Matthew's going to make this very same point next week in chapter 4. As Jesus goes three rounds with Satan, who tries to tempt him, and in the end, Jesus prevails. Hebrews 4.15 says, Though he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet Jesus is without sin. So why then did Jesus need to be baptized? That's the big question people have asked about this text for centuries. John has said, this is a baptism of repentance, and Jesus has no need to repent. That was the conclusion John had come to. So Jesus shouldn't be baptized, right? But why then had Jesus come this long way to see John? Because Jesus sees something in John's baptism, which in this moment John seems to forget, which is that John's baptism is about more than repentance. John's baptism is also about anticipating and revealing the Messiah. And God has revealed to Jesus that he is the Messiah, and therefore he must go to John. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. These are the first words spoken by Jesus in this whole book, and they're not easy words to understand. First, Jesus says to John, let it be so now. In other words, permit it. Let me be baptized. And then Jesus explains his reasoning. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now this is a cryptic saying. What does it mean? Let's start with this word righteousness. Righteousness is a word that we find throughout the Bible, and it can mean different things in different contexts. When Matthew talks about righteousness in this book, and we'll see this very clearly in chapters 5 and 6, He's talking about God's demands on humanity and how humanity should conduct itself in response to those demands. We might say that righteousness in this book gets at living with the proper response to God's demand on our lives. And here Jesus grounds his baptism in the idea of repentance. And the idea, I think, is this. God has a plan. And in this moment, God's expectation, God's requirement is for John and Jesus to fulfill their role in the plan. That is what's fitting. That's what's proper. 
And the implication is God's plan requires Jesus to be baptized by John. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying here. John, I know you don't exactly understand why you have to do this, but this is God's plan. And we both have a part to play in this particular moment in the plan, and that means that right now you need to baptize me. But why is this God's plan? Well, we're never told explicitly. But people have come up with a number of possibilities, and I think number, a number of these possibilities make good sense. Number one, Jesus has not yet begun his ministry. In this season of life, Jesus is simply living as an obedient Israelite. And John is God's prophet who is declaring God's first message to Israel in centuries. As an obedient Israelite, Jesus should fully associate himself with John's ministry, which is the work that the Father is behind at this particular moment in time. Jesus' baptism therefore shows his obedience and his allegiance to the Father and the Father's will. Number two. John said in chapter 3, verse 11, that he who is coming after me is mightier than I. The idea seems to be that the Messiah would in some way succeed John in ministry. As John famously said, I must decrease and he must increase. John has to give up his stage to the Messiah. And that suggests that the Messiah must come from within John's ministry. And so Jesus has to be baptized by John to become a part of John's work in order to succeed to it. Number three. To make all of this happen, John has to know that Jesus is the Messiah. And God has told John he would see through the performance of his baptism the, who the Messiah was. The Messiah would be revealed to him. Only by baptizing Jesus will John see the sign that God promised him. And number four, John is baptizing repentant sinners. Later in this book, Jesus will say in chapter 23, John came to you, the religious leaders of Israel, in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Real people with real sin had their lives radically altered when they had an interaction with God's word through John. They experienced repentance and a new life with God. And by associating himself with John's baptism, Jesus may be anticipating the fact that one day he will associate himself with each of these repentant people when he stands as their substitute and tastes death on their behalf. There may be an idea of Jesus' baptism being the start of his vicarious relationship with sinful humanity. I think those are the best ways to understand why Jesus' baptism was a part of God's plan. And so Jesus tells John, we've got to do this to fulfill our part in God's plan. So Jesus does not come to be baptized by John for repentance because Jesus has no sin. Jesus comes to be baptized by John because John's baptism was about more than repentance. It was about pointing to the Messiah and providing the means by which the Messiah would become known to Israel. And so Jesus received John's baptism. Now we come to our second point, in which we see the Messiah is made known to John and Israel as gloriously the Father and the Holy Spirit attest to the Son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold... The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our Jesus is fully immersed in the Jordan, and the instant that he comes out of the water, three miraculous things happen. Events which serve to confirm first to Jesus that he has understood the call of God on his life properly. He is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. And which signal to John that this is the one who will succeed him. This is the one who will baptize in the Spirit. And which openly signal to Israel that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. 
First, we're told that the heavens open. Find this phrase a few times in the New Testament, and it always appears in pivotal moments in which God supernaturally intervenes in the affairs of humanity. So in Acts 7, before Stephen dies, as he's being martyred, he looks up and the heavens were opened and he sees Jesus. Or in Acts 10, the heavens open and God sends Peter a sign that says, I'm going to save the Gentiles now, not just the Jews. In Revelation 4, John sees the heavens open and he gets a vision of the future. In Revelation 19, we're told the heavens open and Jesus will descend to the earth to conquer this world. When the heavens open, something big is going to happen and that's what happens here. And now the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit's ordinarily invisible, right? He's a spirit. But here the Spirit makes himself visible. He appears as a dove. As he later will do in Acts chapter 2. There he appears as a tongue of fire, right? On the, on the day of Pentecost. Now we might wonder, why does the Holy Spirit have to descend on Jesus? Jesus is, after all, God the Son in human flesh. Why does the Son need the Holy Spirit to descend on him? Does he not already have all the divine power he needs? Or we might wonder, hasn't the Holy Spirit been indwelling Jesus all along? These are some great theological questions. Let's start with this. Just because the Spirit visibly descends on Jesus at his baptism doesn't mean the Spirit hadn't already been at work in Jesus' life at various points. After all, in chapter 1 of this book, we read that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was at work in Jesus' life at his conception. So this isn't the first appearance of the Spirit in Jesus' life. But I think what's going on here relates more to the way the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of people before he was poured out on all believers at Pentecost. In the Old Testament, it seems that the Holy Spirit came upon people in a more limited way than he comes today. Back then, only some believers received the Holy Spirit. And usually when he came upon people, it was to empower them to discharge a limited task or perhaps an office. So the craftsmen who built the tabernacle were empowered by the Spirit. Political leaders like the judges and the kings received the Spirit. Prophets, when they spoke, received the Spirit. And it seems that in most cases when the Spirit came upon someone, he stayed only long enough to help them discharge the particular task that he had been sent to help them with. Remember also the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn if the Lord revoked a person's ministry because of their sin. Remember King Saul? He sinned, he lost the kingship, and the Spirit departed from him. Now, all of this is very different from how the Spirit works on this side of Pentecost, in which every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit remains on us, and He does not leave us. Ephesians 1 says He is the down payment of the inheritance that we will receive. But on that side of Pentecost, things were different. And so here is Jesus, who is the Messiah, the long-promised King, who will speak as a prophet, who will build the true and ultimate temple of God, much better than the tabernacle. All these things that in the Old Testament were things that the Spirit came upon someone to do. And here's Jesus, and he's about to start doing it. He's about to commence his ministry. And as it happened throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit now comes on him, signifying the beginning of his task and bringing him the divine empowerment necessary to accomplish his task. Now you can say, well, how could, how could it be that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit? He is God in the flesh. And that's true. But remember, we've also said that Jesus will normally go about his life and his ministry without leaning on his own divine prerogatives and powers. Jesus is usually living as an ordinary human being, even though he is fully God and he always has been. And so, yes, Jesus, living as an ordinary human being, will find great value and help in having the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with him in his ministry. And so the Spirit descends on Jesus. Jesus' ministry now begins. 
And Matthew tells us Jesus saw this happen. But more than that, the Gospel of John tells us that John the Baptist saw this happen. John 1.32, John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John saw the Spirit come on Jesus. God said, when you see the Spirit come on someone, that's the Messiah. And John saw it. Now he knows Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, not only did I see the Spirit descend on Jesus, I saw the Spirit remain on Jesus. This isn't going to be like in the Old Testament when the Spirit would come and go on somebody. The Spirit has come to remain on Jesus. He isn't leaving. Because from that moment through forevermore, Jesus, the God-man, will always be now about His Father's work. But not only did Jesus see this miracle and John, I think we can surmise that the crowd who was there with John at the Jordan saw this. And we can draw that conclusion from the final miraculous event which takes place here as a voice speaks from heaven. The very voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now the other Gospels report this voice as a second person statement. You are my beloved Son. And I think that tells us the primary purpose behind these events at the Jordan was for Jesus himself to receive confirmation and affirmation from the Father and the Spirit that he is indeed who he knows himself to be. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But Matthew reports this as a third-person statement. And I think he does that to draw our attention to the fact that more people are present here than simply John and Jesus. This voice was for their benefit too, attesting Jesus. Because God had, after all, told John that through his ministry of baptism, the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. And here he is. Now, what I want to draw your attention to here is, is this. For three chapters, from the very first verse of this book, Matthew has been slowly introducing us to Jesus. Back in the first verse of this book, we read that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah whom exiled Israel expected. He is the son of David. He is the one who would fulfill God's promise to make the house of David rule forever. He is the son of Abraham, in whom all the nations will be blessed. But how are those things to happen? How does Jesus do those things? Matthew doesn't tell us yet. He keeps building. Come to chapter 1, and we learn that God ordains Jesus' name. Yahweh saves, that Jesus will deliver his people from their sins. But how? Matthew doesn't tell us yet. He keeps building. He says Jesus is to be called God with us. What does that mean? Is it just a name? Or is it more than that? Matthew doesn't tell us yet. We learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of various Old Testament prophecies. That a virgin will, will conceive and bear a son. That a king with eternal origins will be born in Bethlehem. That Jesus is in some way the new Israel, the founder of the new people of God. That he is hope for Israel in her sorrow. That he himself will be a man of sorrow. So many titles, so many ideas. What does it mean? Matthew doesn't tell us yet. We've seen that he is the one who was born king of the Jews. That he is the one who will baptize his people with the Spirit. We've learned a lot about Jesus thus far. But now Matthew comes to the climax of his introduction to Jesus. And he says, if you want to know who Jesus is more than anything else, he is the well-beloved son of the Father. He is the one in whom the Father delights. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, Matthew's been building this idea across the book, and he'll keep building. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus was conceived miraculously without a father. And so in that sense, Jesus could be called the Son of God. But is that all Matthew means here? No. Matthew has ascribed certain titles to Jesus, which in the Old Testament are associated with the term Son of God. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw Jesus as the King of Israel. 
In 2 Samuel 7, God told David that to his descendants, to the future kings, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. In Psalm 2, God says to each king of Israel as he took the throne, You are my son, today I have begotten you. To be the king of Israel in the Old Testament is in some sense to be called the son of God. But is that all Matthew means here? No. We saw in chapter 2, Jesus is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. We looked at that passage a few weeks ago. And we saw that in the original context in Hosea, he's talking about Israel. As God's elect nation formed by God, Israel is in a sense God's son in the Old Testament. But now we've seen Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the founder of the new people of God. And so he can likewise be called God's son. But is that all Matthew means here? No. In chapter 8, the demons will cry out when they see Jesus saying, Have you come to torment us yet? And Jesus is the one who's going to ex execute God's judgment. And that title, Son of God, is apparently associated with this. But is that the ultimate meaning of the term? No. In chapter 11, Jesus will say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the one who uniquely knows and discloses the Father. And he ties that to this term, Son of God. We're starting to get a clearer picture of the meaning of Jesus' sonship. He has a unique relationship to the Father. In chapter 14, the disciples will acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God when they see him walking on the water and calming a storm. Because in Psalm 77, God is the one who walks on the water and stills the storm. Jesus is the one who does what the Father does. He is God's Son. But that's still not the full picture. It's not until the very last verses of this whole book that Matthew really reveals the, the ultimate meaning of the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. When Matthew says in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here Jesus literally claims total authority over the entire universe. He claims to be eternal and omnipresent. When he says he's able to be with us, with each of us, until the very end of the age, until the end of time as we know it. Jesus says, teach them what I teach you, as opposed to, say, the law of Moses. Jesus says his word is the authoritative word. And Jesus insists that converts be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here at last we see the true extent of Jesus' sonship. He is a participant in the divine nature alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing as three persons. Jesus is the eternal Son of God by nature. That is the true extent of His sonship. And in that sonship, Jesus fulfills and discharges all the roles I've just summarized. And so here in Matthew 3, 16 and 17... We see that the eternal Son of God is openly and publicly attested by the Spirit of God and by the Father Himself. Jesus is the Son of God. In this one instant, as the Son emerges from the water, as the Father speaks and as the Spirit descends, we see all three persons of the Godhead manifesting themselves simultaneously. This is very important because historically in Christianity there's been a heresy called modalism. 
And modalism denied that God is one God who eternally exists as three persons. They said, well, in the Old Testament, God wore a mask and he was the father. And then in the Gospels, God changed his mask and he's the son. And then in the church age, God changed his mask and now he's the Holy Spirit. He's only one person at a time. But that is a lie from the pit of hell. We see that here. All three persons are present at the same time, pointing to Jesus. But more than all that, what the Father says here also points to Jesus' destiny. Because beyond declaring Jesus to be the Son, what the Father says here also sounds a lot like Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the Son of God. But more than that, he is the chosen servant prophesied by Isaiah. The one who will be pierced for our transgressions, who will be crushed for our iniquities, who will make many to be accounted righteous. The one who will fulfill God's good plan and purposes in this world to Israel and the nations. The one in whom the Father delights because of his perfect obedience. And here the Father says, that's him. It's Jesus. Jesus will execute the full plan of the Father. It is Jesus whom the Father delights in because of his absolute obedience and faith. Which we see in this passage is manifested by Jesus' willingness to humble himself, to be baptized by John. And which at the end of this book we'll see and Jesus' willingness to humble himself and be subject to obedient death on the cross. And as John the Baptist saw this sign and heard this voice, then and only then did he really understand who Jesus was and why he had come. Only then could he say the words written in the Gospel of John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. I know this is a very theologically intense and rich passage today that we've looked at. But to conclude, I think it's a passage that exalts Jesus, the chosen servant of God who is attested to be the Son of God, the one in whom the Father delights. And today, my prayer is that you would know Jesus as your Savior, that He is God incarnate who has died for you and is risen. If you have never come to Christ, I would call on you to repent, to turn from your life of sin and to turn to Jesus. If you do know Jesus already, I would say today, first, I hope that you have submitted to his demand to be baptized, not sprinkled as an infant, but fully immersed as a believer, testifying to your union to Jesus' death and resurrection. Today, I hope we fixed our eyes on Jesus a bit and that we have supreme confidence that God is at work in this world through Jesus and that God will complete his good purpose in Jesus. So let us now respond and worship Jesus in song, who is the Son of God, who has delighted the Father, and may He be our delight today as well.